Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A leader must be, on the one hand, independent, an actor in the sphere of, of the political realm. And yet that leader must simultaneously see him or herself as part of a larger plan. Hello, I'm Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, and you're listening to Top Story, a weekly podcast where I analyze the most important stories happening in Jewish news around the world. Each week, I will break down politics, foreign policy, and culture to provide insights into what is going on behind the headlines. Hello, and welcome to Top Story. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're privileged to bring you an important conversation about the nature of Jewish leadership with the scholar and author Rabbi Meyer Soloveitchik. But first, I want to remind you to like this video and podcast, subscribe to JNS, and click on the bell for notifications. I also want to remind you that you don't have to wait a full week for more top story analysis. There is a daily top story podcast where I share more news and analysis with you about the most significant issues we're facing today. You can find The Daily Show under Top Story with Jonathan Tobin on the JNS channel on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I'd like to let you know that JNS is now also on Telegram. You can find the latest news, including Top Story and other JNS TV content there by subscribing. And now to today's program. At a time when Jews are so badly divided, what can past examples of Jewish leadership teach us about not just history, but how to unite and above all, survive as a people? In the last several months, political conflict in Israel has accentuated and exacerbated the divisions in its society between the secular and religious, Ashkenazim and Mizrahim, and the political left and right. And amid the clamor of protests and invective that have drowned out most recent discourse about the issue of judicial reform that is the ostensible focus of debate, those who care about Israel and the Jewish future look for leadership that might point for, to a way out of the current maelstrom. But how can leaders lead in a productive way when we are so polarized? and that the impulse to demonize opponents seems to overwhelm our ability to think, debate, and above all, listen to each other. Perhaps, as Jews have always done in the past, it's time to look to our sacred texts, as well as to our history, both ancient and modern, for guidance not only as to how to bridge the divide between competing political factions and societal groups, but also as to the nature of true Jewish leadership. Indeed, as caught up as we are in the antagonisms of the present, when every leader is inevitably smeared as a villain by his political foes, a deep dive into the stories of past leaders is more necessary than ever. One person who has taken up this challenge is Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, a member of not only of a famous rabbinic family, but an important thinker in his own right. 
his book, Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Leadership, based on a series of lectures he gave for the Tikva Fund, is, I think, a timely example of just such a quest. And this week's episode will give us a chance to get his insight on this important topic. Meyer Soloveitchik attended Yeshiva College in New York, studied religious philosophy at the Yale Divinity School, and earned his doctorate in religion from Princeton. He serves as director of Yeshiva University's Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought and as rabbi at Congregation Sheriff Israel in New York, the oldest Jewish congregation in the United States. Soloveitchik has published widely on both Jewish and American history and has lectured around the world on the intersection of religious and political thought. Most recently, Bible 365, a six days a week podcast, guides listeners through the entire Hebrew Bible. He is also the author of Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Rabbi Meyer Soloveitchik, welcome to Top Story. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be speaking to you today. Rabbi, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I want to start by asking why a book about Jewish leadership today. Um, we're at a time when so many have come to see history as the work of ideas and the masses, and some see the great man theory of history as outdated. Is your book a refutation of that sort of trend? Um, why these 10 examples? Why now? So there's several different questions there, uh, and all are incredibly worthy of addressing. Uh, first, uh, the purpose of this book on Jewish leadership was inspired, that was essentially uh, to address a lacunae, which is that actually while there are so many different books about leadership in general, you can find books about leadership in the politics section, in the history section, in the business section, in the sports section. You'll find memoirs uh, from uh, people like Henry Kissinger, who write about their own experience of leaders and leadership, and you'll find basketball and football coaches who write about leadership. But how many books are there about Jewish political leadership throughout the ages and the unique nature of that form of leadership? If we look back to classical and medieval Jewish literature, you'll find works of law and literature and mysticism and philosophy, but you'll find very few works of politics, and you will not find anything like, let's say, Plutarch's Lives, which give us portraits of different Jewish leaders. And so I, I sought to create a book and to paint a picture, if you will, of Jewish leadership throughout the centuries uh, and to give portraits of these different leaders and to thereby seek to discern what is the biblical ideal of Jewish leadership itself. So that's that was the main purpose of the book. So getting back to the sort yeah. of great man or in the yeah. case of your so example, in terms of great in terms women of that too. question, which is a question, I mean we could talk about that for, for the next hour. Uh, but uh, the, but on one uh, foot. But on one foot, exactly. Uh, the the title of the book and the thesis of the book both embraces what was uh, once known as the great man theory of history, but it also pushes back at it. What I mean by that is the following. If by that thesis you mean that major events in history are often due to the men and women that served as leaders in a leadership capacity, I, I, I absolutely believe that. And yet, at the heart of the biblical view, I think, is that 
history, which is the story of nations, is a story to highlight the, the title of my book, is a story not only of power, but also of providence. Uh, and that this is revealed especially in the story of the Jewish people. And so uh, what that means is uh, twofold, at least in my book. The first is that the truly great leaders in Jewish history, or at least the leaders that lived up to the biblical ideal of leadership, were simultaneously reflecting a majesty and humility at the same time, uh, which is a title of a, an, a, an essay, a famous essay from my great uncle Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, and that this form of leadership sets them apart from most of the great statesmen that we tend to celebrate. So, for example, uh, Churchill was without question the greatest statesman of the 20th century, but no one would ever describe him as humble. That's not a virtue that he was known to embody. So I once asked my friend, the great British historian, Andrew Roberts, if he could name uh, any great European statesmen that were known for their humility. And not a single name came up. And yet, from the biblical perspective, a leader must be, on the one hand, independent, an actor in the sphere of, of the political realm. And yet that leader must simultaneously see him or herself as part of a larger plan, as part of a providential plan, as part of the unfolding story that is the miraculous tale of the Jewish people. The biblical ideal uh, is embodied by David. David was simultaneously an independent actor, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant military leader, uh, one that, that worked within the realm of power, with, incredible, with an incredible strategic mind. And yet when you read the Psalms and you see his descriptions of his successes and his failures, it's not clear when he's speaking about actions that he freely took and when he's speaking about himself as part of some, some larger planet. The great modern version of this was Menachem Begin. So uh, when Menachem Begin uh, made perhaps the boldest decision of his career, which was the attack on Osirak, on the Iraqi nuclear reactor, an attack so bold and so surprising at the time that the Israeli media didn't even believe that it had happened, even when the prime minister's office told them that it had occurred. And you see his descriptions about it. He's simultaneously making the decision to do that, driven by features of his own character that were unique to him, his experience of the Holocaust, his memory of his parents and his community, and his deep desire to ensure that no nation could existentially threaten the Jewish people again. And yet at the same time, he described the fact that all of the Israeli pilots that executed his order came back alive and well as being a sign of God's hand in history. So uh, the, the title and thesis of the book, Providence and Power, both embraces what is often, or at least was described as the great man theory of history, but also pushes back against it and emphasizes the history of the Jewish people as the great, as the great example that also pushes back against it, or at least makes the case for providence in history. There are other leaders in my book that didn't necessarily embrace the notion of providence in history, but whose Jewish stories are so remarkable, so unlikely, stories like that of Herzl or Louis Brandeis, that 
I argue that those stories are the, themselves uh, incredible examples of the providential nature of the Jewish story. So that's the uh, more complex uh, version of, of, of my answer to your question, Jonathan, which is I both absolutely accept that the story of history is itself a story of bold decisions made uh, by leaders, but it's not only that. Uh, is the story of Truman's recognition of Israel a story of a bold leader who, who made the decision that he did despite the fact that he was told to do the opposite by General Marshall, the man he admired more than anyone on earth? Yes, of course that's part, that's part of the story. But as part of the story also, the utterly unlikely situation of Harry Truman stationed in World War I in a canteen with uh, a Jewish soldier with whom he became good friends and who ultimately prevailed on him to meet with Chaim Weizmann uh, at a time when General Marshall sought uh, to undo the UN partition plan. Yes, it's also, that's also part of the story, as is the utterly unlikely fact that, uh, that FDR chose him uh, to be his vice president uh, and placed him on a list of vice presidents that he would approve, along with Douglas. And at least according to one version of the story, Roosevelt wrote on a note that he'd be happy to take Douglas or Truman, and then the head of the DNC switched the note to read Truman and Douglas, Truman or Douglas. So that's also part of the story. Of leadership. And all that is captured by the title of the book, which is Providence and Power. Yes. Well, these are you know, endless counterfactuals that can, uh, can, be, uh, can be gone from these sorts of scenarios. And of course, as your book uh, shows us, leaders comes in all shapes and sizes. Leadership comes in all shapes and sizes and from varied backgrounds, good and bad. And, you know, I think you're, you're making a good argument that what makes a Jewish leader isn't just someone with power who is Jewish. Or, you know, we have to limit, you know, that title to someone who acts in a particular way that is motivated um, by the need to defend Jews and uh, Jewish power and, and Jewish life. Um, but uh, let's start with uh, going through your book. And, um, you know, let's talk about King David and um, what it means, why he is so important to us. It's more than just, you know, the song that you still sing. Is it, you know, what is the difference between the icon, um, you know, the, the perennial symbol of Jewish sovereignty? So there were two versions of David that were each popular in their own respective ages, and both are profoundly wrong. One is uh, embodied by, even today, the most famous artistic image of David, which is Michelangelo's sculpture of David about to launch his deadly stone at Goliath. And this is David as perfect human being. David as an image of uh, the divinity. And that, of course, is not at all who David is. Uh, the grandeur of David's life is reflected through the lens of his humanity. But then there's the modern version of David which you see constantly, and you see it in those that write about David, which is that those that see in David's failings a parallel to the failings of uh, modern politicians today. So when there's a scandal today, you'll see somebody say, well, David also had scandal. Yeah, we heard a lot about King David in the late 1990s. Th see, the, the, 
Each party, by the way, or each, you will see it in whenever somebody wants to defend uh, supporting a leader despite that leader's flaws, you'll see them bring up David. Uh, now, of course, you can make a case for supporting a specific leader in a specific case despite that leader's flaws. It depends on the circumstances. But to compare David to those leaders is, 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 is profoundly incorrect because the central theme of David's life and the one that is so difficult for, I think, people in contemporary society to relate to today is this profound feeling of the presence of the divine. And that's reflected throughout his life and throughout the Psalms. Uh, so um, David is fleeing King Saul, and he comes upon Saul in a compromising situation where he's able to neutralize this threat. And David's own men are telling him, you can kill him now. He's trying to kill you. And David says, no, I can't do that because he's an anointed of God. And, and I can't assault anyone who's been anointed by God, even if that person is trying to kill me. David ends up cutting off just a piece of Saul's cloak to show Saul that he could have gotten to him if he wanted to. And he feels bad even for that. So I cited this, uh, actually, when I reviewed in commentary uh, Robert Alter's uh, translation of the Bible and his commentary on the Bible. Uh, Robert Alter refers to David as a Machiavellian figure. And, and to me, there is no one less Machiavellian in all of Jewish history because someone driven solely by a desire for power would never have acted in this situation the way David did. And similarly, when it came to David's great sin with the story of Bathsheba, the way David reacted to that was by composing a psalm, pouring out his heart before God, and repent and emerging as the biblical archetype of repentance. My sin will always be before me. Now, you can't really imagine a politician caught in scandal today, Jonathan, writing that psalm. And so uh, when uh, Amos Oz supposedly said, uh, I think it was Amos Oz, maybe it was another uh, Israeli writer, that given David's sins, he would have thought it uh, more likely that he would have reigned in Tel Aviv rather than Jerusalem. So leaving aside the fact that I like Tel Aviv very much, and Tel Aviv is getting pretty religious, actually. Um, but the fact is, to make a statement like that, is to, funda is to fundamentally misunderstand who David was and what was the source of his greatness. His balance of providence and power, his balance of majesty and humility. And I think it's just that that notion is so foreign to us today. Even among very observant people, the overwhelming feeling of God's presence that David reflects is so hard for many to identify with that that leads to a profound misunderstanding of who David was. Thomas Cahill, who wrote the, the book, The Gifts of the Jews, uh, argued that the Psalms are the first time in, in all of the literature of the world that where the word I refers to the I of interiority. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That when David says I, he means his inner feelings, his, his turmoil. And I think what Kale said was that David was the evidence that thousands of years ago, people laughed and cried just as we do, wept and moaned and grieved just as we do, raged and rejoiced just as we do, something like that. And of course that's true. But it's also true that David involves God, and especially the God of Israel, whose love for Israel and care for Israel he's convinced of in every act and in every emotion. God is with him when he succeeds and when he fails, when he rages and when he rejoices. And that's a model of leadership that we don't see that often. I think in the modern era, we see it, not that I'm identifying the two, but we see it most reflected in the life of Menachem Begin. Um, but uh, we're so not used to seeing it. Um, that uh, we put uh, a, uh, we, we try to create David in our own image. The one American political leader that truly reflected this interesting balance was Abraham Lincoln, uh, all the more remarkable because he was an agnostic for much of his life. And yet, at the moment that he achieved true greatness during the Civil War, he's simultaneously taking bold action and also constantly reflecting why God is doing this to America, why so many are dying, if the cause of the Union is so just, and emerges with a political theology of leadership and of America that is so profoundly biblical that uh, it truly captures the balance between providence and power that I'm trying to get at in my own discussion of Jewish leadership. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, the second inaugural is, in effect, um, a yeah, which speaks of the judgment of God being visited upon America because of slavery is in some ways a very Davidic, you know, um, slumic sort of moment. And indeed, that's what he cites. He cites David's words: the the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And I think it was the 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 late great British historian Paul Johnson recently passed away, who wrote an article about. Uh, Lincoln's description of America as the almost chosen people. And he writes that the second inaugural, what sets it apart is that you cannot imagine any of Lincoln's contemporaries in Europe. Garibaldi, uh, uh, the the leaders from Napoleon's family, uh, Palmerston, you can't imagine any of them giving that speech. And that highlights the American bond to the Bible, but as, pers as personified and embodied specifically through the greatness of Abraham Lincoln's life. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's a really important uh, reminder of a model of leadership. Now, in your book, you give us two examples of Jewish women who are also leaders, 
Queen Esther, Queen Shlomtzion. Uh, more about Shlomtzion in a minute, but about Esther, about whom we're reminded every Purim, uh, you have some interesting insights, and not just as the winner, as you said, the ancient uh, Persian edition of The Bachelor, but as an example of a key insight into the exercise of power, as well as its potential fragility, because it's rooted in dependence on non-Jewish power. Yeah. So the two queens that I discuss are, of course, very different from each other. Uh, Esther is is working within the interiors of uh, a despotic king uh, outside the land of Israel, and Shalom Tzion is actually ruling in the land of Israel. Uh, but uh, to a certain extent, like David, because we know so much about Esther and because her story is so celebrated, uh, in in a strange way, we often place our own assumptions on her story uh, and miss out the source of her true greatness. The way it's usually told is there's a decree against the Jews. Her cousin Mordecai inspires her to action. And then she acts, and we tell the story very simply. Uh, what's often missed, though this is something that is emphasized by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, is that actually what occurs is that when Mordecai asks her to act, she does respond with action. But the strategy she adopts is not what he proposes. Mordecai wants her to immediately storm into the king's throne room, uh, inform the king that she's been covering up her identity till now, uh, and just to plead for her people. And Esther essentially understands that uh, with a mercurial, paranoid king like Ahasuerus, that would end with her death, and that instead you have to act with cunning and guile. Because you're essentially like, if you read, I love royal biographies. It's one of my uh, hobbies is reading royal biographies. And if you read about the palace of Henry VIII, it sounds very similar to Ahasuerus. You have a, mercur a mercurial king who is always worried about threats to his power. Brilliant in many ways, but also paranoid. Um, and the different factions within the court are playing on that paranoia in their quest for power. And Esther does the same and does so with incredible, incredible, incredible brilliance. Um, and I, I, I do more than celebrate Esther's statesmanship and statecraft. I, I basically uh, proclaim her the inventor of Jewish statesmanship in a certain sense, because in the Bible until her period, leaders, including David, are guided by prophets. Their goal is first and foremost, their job first and foremost, is to use their gifts to execute what God has told them to do. Esther, as Rabbi Soloveitchik stressed, Esther is, is reigning in a terrifying period when prophecy is on the wane, when it's in the process of disappearing from Israel. And so the strategy is devised by her and her alone. And in that respect, she is the first great example of Jewish statesmanship for the era in which we find ourselves, an era in which God makes himself manifest through providence, but not through open enunciations and declarations. And I see her, therefore, as, as one of the, not just a, an important story to study today, but as a, one of the great exemplars, and in a certain sense, even the inventor of of Jewish statecraft. Now, it's famous as Esther. Shlomtzion right. is not well remembered by most Jews. No. 
what was important about her and why should she matter um, for more than having a street named after her in modern yes. Jerusalem? Though it is a great street and has many good restaurants on it. I think we should stress that, which is clearly the greatest way of honoring her political legacy uh, is, is having all these delicious uh, kosher uh, places to eat on Rehov Shalom Tzion Hamalka. So she's sufficiently honored that way, but I think she still deserves uh, more recognition, even than that, if such a thing is po- if such an honor, if such a thing is, is possible to be conceived. Uh, Shlom Tzion uh, lived at an enormously tumultuous time in Jewish history. Uh, she was uh, a wife of two different Hasmonean kings uh, and in, uh, was... Uh, married through a leveret marriage, it seems, uh, first to one and then to another brother, at a time when all the glory of the Hasmoneans, all the glory of the men known inaccurately but famously as the Maccabees, uh, had uh, largely disappeared uh, from their family. Uh, And uh, it is a testament to her remarkable character and political wisdom that she not only survived uh, a time when Hasmonean leaders were attacking members of their own family, uh, and as different sects of Jews in Jerusalem fought against each other, she not only survived this, she was so admired by her second Hasmonean husband that upon his death, he made her, instead of his children, uh, his heir so that she emerged as really the only queen regnant in all of Jewish history. And at that moment teamed up uh, with the great sage, the uh, great sage Shimon ben Shetach, uh, to, to ensure uh, the endurance and well-being of Judaism itself by safeguarding and protecting the Jewish family. Uh, it was in her age uh, that the Ketubah, uh, which is seen as a traditional document today uh, and was actually created as a form of protecting uh, the rights and well-being of, of women, uh, and uh, as well as a whole system of Jewish education were all set up in her reign uh, as, in, as part of her partnership with Shimon ben Shetach. It was immediately after her reign uh, during the civil war between her two sons, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, uh, that Rome uh, first got its claws into Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, from it was all downhill from there. Uh, and so, uh, and, I mean, there were moments in the grandeur of Jerusalem from then on. Herod, obviously, uh, the Herodian temple in Jerusalem was created later. Uh, but in terms of Jewish independence, it was all downhill from there. Um, and yet it was the age of Shalom Tzion a reign of but a few years, which truly set uh, the stage for the continuity of Judaism itself, and therefore for the Jewish return uh, to Judea uh, almost 2,000 years after the destruction of the temple. It's a time period, Jonathan, that, that people just don't know a lot about. Uh, you know, I do a, a podcast, which I'm, thank God, finishing now, uh, uh, a daily podcast on the... Um, multi-millennia year history of Jerusalem. Uh, And part of what inspired me to do it was the fact that when it came to the Second Temple period, people know about maybe three names. They maybe know Ezra and Herod 
uh, and Judah the Maccabee. Uh, and uh, they know very little about centuries of Jewish politics and Jewish history. And yet it, it's, it's because now there is an independent Jewish state again. How could you not want to study that history and, and mine it for, insight, in, for insights and for its relevance to our day? And so I sought to choose the greatest Jewish leader of the Second Temple period, the greatest political leader, uh, the, the greatest spiritual leader of the Second Temple period, presumably would be Ezra, uh, but the greatest uh, independent Jewish leader um, in all of Jewish, in all of the Second Temple period in its centuries may well be Shalom Tzion. And uh, it's, it's too bad that she's not well known. And she deserves, uh, she deserves greater recognition uh, today. Now, that leads directly to my next, your next chapter, which is about one of the most important Jews in history, which is uh, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai. He's essential to the survival of Judaism and the Jewish people by ensuring its continuity in the face of the Roman destruction of Judea during the Great Revolt. But he's also kind of, you know, a, a figure about which some people have some ambivalence um, because his dissension to essentially wave the white flag in that moment uh, might have looked different to the Jews still fighting the Romans on the ramparts of Jerusalem in the year 67. Yes. How do we reconcile our admiration of his good judgment with our feelings about the Jews who did fight to the end, which is very much part of contemporary Jewish thinking, given the fact that we still, uh, and I think rightly, revere you know, the memory of the Jews who died on Masada, who were you know, diametrically opposed to him? So we have to ask, in answering that important question, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jerusalem and what does it actually embody? Why is Jerusalem worth fighting for? Why is its independence so important? Why is Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem so important? What does Jerusalem actually teach us? So it teaches us two things, and both were taught by David. The first is that Judaism is meant to embody the profound bonds of Jewish family. David conquers Jerusalem and seeks to make it his capital because it is one of the it is the only city that we know of that was actually shared between two tribal territories. It was shared between Judah and Benjamin. Now Judah was David's tribe. Saul's tribe was Benjamin. David makes it his capital after a civil war between the forces of David and the forces of Saul, emphasizing the bonds between the two. But this bond is much greater than just David and Saul, Jonathan, because uh, the great example of Jewish familial reconciliation is in the Joseph story, uh, where Joseph, after having been sold, kidnapped and sold by his brothers, uh, stands before them disguised as the vizier of Egypt and proclaims, that he is going to take the youngest of uh, Jacob's children, his full brother Benjamin, as his slave. And at that moment, Judah essentially steps in front of Benjamin, and Judah was the one who had come up with the idea of selling Joseph in the first place, steps forward and says, take me instead. Take me instead. And so geography reminds us of this event. The joining of Judah and Benjamin reminds us of the moment when Judah stepped forward and sacrificed himself for Benjamin a moment so surprising and so emotionally overwhelming that Joseph 
could not resist forgiving his brothers. And the people of Israel became whole once again. And so uh, the, uh, the very layout of Jerusalem is meant to remind us of the bonds between, between Jews. That's why it's so important, as I discuss later in the book, uh, that Menachem Begin, uh, when uh, fired upon uh, while standing on the Alta, the Irgun ship, the Alta Lena, e even though the ship bore arms that Begin was convinced were necessary in the 1948 battle for Jerusalem, Begin still ordered his men not to fire back. Because as he said, never a war between brothers. And that if the only way to get arms to Jerusalem was for Jews to kill Jews, this was not something that he was going to embrace. The other lesson of Jerusalem is that uh, power and Jewish independence, as important as it is, is not an end in itself. So David's dream was to take the city that he had captured, that he had conquered, a city that in theory was a testament to his own military brilliance, and crown it with a temple to God to highlight the importance of providence, as it were, over power, as important as power is and was. Now, when we combine all these lessons together, we can understand the greatness of Yochanan ben Zaka. We know a lot about the rebels uh, that held Jerusalem. And studying what occurred until then, there's no question in my mind that from a moral perspective, the rebellion against the Romans was absolutely just. And we know, from Josephus at least, that one of the members of uh, the rabbinic leadership, Shimon ben Gamliel, uh, was one of the leaders of the revolt. This was not just uh, a revolt in which uh, non-rabbis were involved. At the same time, we also know from Josephus what ended up occurring, which was that during the years of the revolt from 66 CE to 70 CE, as the Jews fought the Romans outside Jerusalem, they fought each other within. Jew killed Jew within Jerusalem. And Jew killed Jew atop the Temple Mount itself. And then, and this is described both by the Talmud and the tale in the story of Yochanan and Zakkai and by Josephus, the factions burnt each other's food supply. And so what Yochanan ben Zakkai is doing is not saying that the, the fight against the Romans is not a noble cause. That's not the case he's making. The revolt against the Romans is a noble and just cause, but Jews in Jerusalem cannot hope for success against their enemies if they make an enemy of each other and they kill each other. And that's why Yochanan ben Zakkai was convinced that Jerusalem would fall because it did not deserve to be saved. And the Talmud emphasizes he only leaves at that moment when the, 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 the leader of one faction of the Zealots uh, orders uh, another faction's, uh, another orders Jewish food storage in Jerusalem burned. And it's at that moment that, he's, that he realizes the time has come to prepare for the disaster yet to come. And of course, we bear that in mind today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Menachem Begin is buried uh, on the Mount of Olives overlooking that very same site. And he chose to be buried there because that was a traditional Jewish burial place rather than on Mount Herzl with Jewish statesmen and leaders. But he specifically chose to be buried next to two Jews, one Sephardic, one Ashkenazic, who died in each other's arms, whose blood was mingled one with the other, thereby linking their blood, their shared blood bond, with the Temple Mount and with Jerusalem itself. Jews can only deserve Jerusalem if they remember the teaching of Jerusalem. And that's what Riochanan ben Zakkai understood. And of course, as he fled Jerusalem, he did not give up on Jerusalem, but rather encoded and enshrined into Jewish ritual the refusal to forget Jerusalem and the faith that the Jewish return to Jerusalem was a certainty and that every generation had to prepare for it because either it will happen in their generation or the next one must be taught, because that may be the era of the Jewish return. So it is true that some secular Zionists uh, did not like Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Soloveitchik reflected with great pain that when Chaim Weitzman brought the Knesset into session in Jerusalem, he celebrated uh, Zionist leaders, but did not make mention of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. But there were great Zionist thinkers and leaders. Uh, I emphasize uh, one who died tragically young, the great diplomat and rabbi and spokesman for Israel, Yaakov Herzog, uh, the uh, first cousin of Israel's... In, uh, his debates with Toynbee in your book. Indeed, and, and for all those who are listening to, to this, if, if you have never heard uh, the, uh, the debate between Yaakov Herzog and uh, Toynbee at a time when... And the most famous historian on earth, probably at that time, who described uh, the, the faith of Yochanan ben Zakkai as a fossilized form of nationhood. Uh, and uh, you can go on YouTube and listen to that entire debate. Uh, and it's worth your while and it's worth your time. So there were Zionist leaders who understood that. Rabbi Soloveitchik was one. Uh, Yaakov Herzog, his father, the great first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, the first, first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the state of Israel, uh, Rabbi Isaac Herzog. So these were great. These were leaders who understood it. Um, and now we see more and more that it is being recognized. I wrote an article in commentary called What Zionism Owns Yavna, which was the site of Yochanan Zakkai's academy. And the Israel Antiquities Authority has set up now a whole Sanhedrin trail, which traces the route of the Sanhedrin, 
of the judicial body preserved by Yochanan and Zakkai from Yavne, then took a path north uh, to the Galilee. Uh, and today that is marked and remembered and celebrated. And uh, it's high time. It's high time. Interesting. Now, um, although you serve at a uh, synagogue, which is part of the Sephardi tradition, much of American Jewry tends to be Ashkenazi-centric. But you include two figures who are essentially heroes of the Sephardi tradition in Don Isaac Abravanel and Rabbi uh, Menashe ben Israel, uh, yes. the latter of whom was a 17th century proto-Zionist. Yes. What lessons, sort of briefly, because we have a lot to get through here. Sure. Um, what lessons did they have for us? So the, the, it is absolutely correct that Barbanel and Menashe ben Israel were two great Sephardic leaders, two great Jewish leaders. In an interesting way, their lives are mirror images of each other. Abarbanel was raised uh, within the full Jewish tradition uh, with uh, the scandal of his grandfather having converted to Christianity in his past. Uh, and he saw his entire life as a series of providential acts that was leading to one moment where he stood in the throne room of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain and pleaded with them to revoke the decree of expulsion against the Jewish people. I think he saw himself as having been set up by providence to be a second Esther, and then he failed because they said no. And his true greatness came in what followed after that when they offered him the world convert and stay in Spain. And he said no, and then inspired the fortitude and faith of the Jews that left with him, going on to other incredible achievements in Jewish statesmanship, especially in the Republic of Venice. Menashe ben Israel is the opposite. He grows up officially a Christian uh, in Portugal, but uh, a, a secret Jew, only comes to Amsterdam from Portuguese territory as a teenager and is circumcised then, but then becomes, I think we could say, the first uh, Jewish public intellectual uh, because he's writing books not in Hebrew uh, or Judeo-Spanish uh, for the larger world defending what Judaism believes. And then he, on his own, decides to travel to England to lobby Cromwell uh, when he was the Lord and Protector of England, to allow to to allow Jews into England, where they from where they had been banned since the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290. I, I one of the one of the questions that come up about the book, Jonathan, a lot is, what does statesmanship mean if you're representing a people that's stranded all over the world that doesn't have power? How is statesmanship possible? But of course, statesmanship does not only involve working the levers of your own power. It also involves a brilliant political mind, understands the minds of other leaders, and seeks thereby through diplomatic engagement to achieve the benefit of one's own people. So uh, when uh, Benjamin Franklin comes to France to seek its involvement in the American Revolution, he's not doing that with the promise of riches from America or with the threat of American power, of course but he has a deep understanding of the French enmity for Britain and uh, utilizes that 
in order to further facilitate the success of the American Revolution. Menashe ben Israel represents a people that have no power, but he deeply understands the religious motivations of Cromwell. He has a profound understanding of the, the fervent of theological concepts that are running around Revolution-era England, or Civil War-era England, I guess we should say. Um, and he utilizes that to make the case for the return of the Jews. And I think he succeeded beyond that which he thought he had achieved. Uh, and uh, it is perhaps because Sephardic Jews grew up with legends of Jews that worked in the courts of kings in ways that many Ashkenazim, at least to some extent, did not, uh, that we have these cases of proactive uh, Jewish statesmanship in uh, the medieval and, 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 and post-medieval um, Sephardic history. Now, in one of your chapters, you take on the man who uh, clearly was among the most um, interesting of the 19th century, as well as the most famous and powerful Jew, British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, but of course, who actually wasn't Jewish, since his father had him baptized at the age of 12, but who spent his entire life proudly proclaiming his Jewish heritage, thereby exemplifying uh, both the threat of assimilation and what many of us now consider a key indicator of Jewish survival, a sense of Jewish peoplehood. So what are we to make of Disraeli today in terms of his place in our idea of Jewish leadership, especially at a time when assimilation of the sort that his family embraced is no longer necessary for success of the diaspora, but also at a time of rising anti-Semitism? Yes. So I think Disraeli, obviously the most unlikely candidate of all those that I write about uh, for a book on Jewish leadership, uh, but even as religiously, theologically, he was a complicated, uh, he was a, in a complicated situation, baptized before his bar mitzvah, supposedly described himself as the blank page uh, between the uh, Hebrew Bible and, uh, and, and Christian scripture, um, but clearly always considered himself linked to the Jewish people, supposedly and famously responded to an anti-Semitic attacked by saying, yes, I am a Jew. And when the right honorable gentleman's ancestors were in the, uh, the wilds of, of uh, were in the wilds of the woods, mine were priests in the Temple of Solomon. Yeah, with painted, uh, the painting their faces blue, yes. Um, and, uh, and even more strikingly, because his father thought so little of his Jewish heritage, though his father never converted himself, even more strikingly, Disraeli placed his Jewishness at the very center of his political persona. It's all the more striking because there's no reason to assume that that would have been to his advantage in 19th century England. I think Adam Kirsch describes this as, as, as taking one's greatest political vulnerability and, and making it into a strength, or as he calls it, it's an act of jujitsu. Um, and... Uh, what he does is he embraces the mystique of Jewish history, sees himself in communion in a certain sense with that, and even more strikingly argues through fascinating and strange novels like Tancred that all of Western civilization is indebted to, to the Judaic moral tradition and that in a time of great, Seem, of seeming great progress, meaning the Industrial Revolution, 
should the West forget what it owes the Jews, then all the technology that it develops will actually be used for great evil uh, and uh, for greater destruction than one can ever conceive. It's, it's a haunting prediction, obviously, when one studies, a haunting prediction made in the 19th century, when one studies what occurred in Europe in the 20th century. And he sees this. He sees this. Uh, Churchill has a, an, an incredibly entrancing and, 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 and bizarre a piece that he wrote toward the end of his life where he describes a dream of conversing with his father. Uh, and uh, he has his father after he describes certain things that have occurred. His father, who was, of course, from Benjamin Disraeli's party, said something in this dream, says something to Churchill like, Dizzy saw it all, that old Jew, he saw the future. Uh, and uh, at a time when you have people like Prince Albert in his famous address at the Crystal Palace saying that uh, the, the growth of technology and the locomotive will, make, will create the brotherhood of man by connecting us all, Benjamin Disraeli said, actually... Um, technological advancement is morally neutral. And the question is, what morality it advances? And if all of Western civilization understands its connection to Sinai, and he says that explicitly, really, then the morality of the future is ensured. If not, then what we have to look forward to is, is, is moral depredation, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, and uh, he saw all that, which makes him, I think, one of the most fascinating figures in Jewish history and one of the most fascinating figures in British history. Yeah, uh, it's a very rare. interesting contrast because you know, his yeah. great rival was Gladstone, who was a yes. religious, um, yes. you know, arguably very sanctimonious, but also... Yes, and had some figure. other, some strange elements of his own, let's just put yeah, it that you way. Know, but, you know, no. and Disraeli was seen as a great cynic, and yet yes. you, you have, you hone in on the fact that in some ways he was uh, deeply no, moral. you're absolutely well. right, and uh, the fame, uh, the, so it is repeated, I think, that uh, uh, Benjamin didn't, Benjamin Disraeli didn't like Gladstone. Um, there's a good book and about was, the rivalry called... It was reciprocated. Yes, exactly. I think there's a it's, uh, there's a book called The Lion and the Unicorn about their rivalry, uh, and um, supposedly when Benjamin when Disraeli was asked uh, to give the difference between uh, to explain the difference between a misfortune and a tragedy, he said something like, "Well, if Gladstone tripped and fell into the Thames, that would be a misfortune. If somebody actually pulled him out, that would be a tragedy." Um, but but that's what makes this all the more remarkable. A pure cynic who cared only about, to use Disraeli's famous phrase, climbing the greasy pole, would not have written Tank Red. And it's not clear to me that a pure cynic, when Parliament is debating whether to allow Jews in Parliament, would have stood up in opposition to most of his party and said, you have to let the Jews in precisely because of what you owe them as Christians because, he said, where is your Christianity if not for their Judaism? That's a very bold thing to say in Parliament in the middle Especially of the 19th when, century. And one more vote for the other party because the, and the when you're, question was... And was, when you uh, yourself are a 
very young and unaccomplished member of your party, when you do not yet hold the reins of power. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And he continues to both mystify and entrance, uh, not despite the complications of his life, but I think precisely because of them. The great opposite to him, a man who really could have been in this book, is Moses Montefiore, one of the great Jews of Jewish history, who was the proud, observant Jew working on behalf of the Jewish people. But in a certain sense, Moses Montefiore is an heir to Menashe ben Israel and Abarbanel. He was a member of, a proud member of the Sephardic community of England and saw himself very much in line with that. The Israeli is so much more complicated, but therefore, in a certain sense, so very interesting. Yes. Now, if Disraeli was sort of the um, the outlier, the the most you know sort of least obvious picks for Jewish leadership, most obvious is probably Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, one of the most consequential figures of Jewish history. But how does he stand up as a model today? When, especially you know when Jewish intellectuals in the diaspora no longer seem to understand, or many of them anyway, the imperative of Jewish sovereignty as essential to Jewish survival. So I, 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 um, I think the answer to that question has to come from what is the central lesson of Herzl's life? And to me, the lesson is not only the importance of Jewish leadership and of political instinct and political wisdom, though Churchill, I'm sorry, though Herzl certainly does embody that, but also the, the, the role of providence in Jewish history. How do we make sense of a story like Theodore Herzl? Here you have a man, as Rick Richmond notes in a wonderful essay he wrote uh, about Herzl, you have a man who just comes out of nowhere in the 1890s, has the political wisdom not to invent modern Zionism, because modern Zionism already existed, but to teach the Zionist movement that a genuine political structure needed to be set up for its success and then dies a couple of years later with his eerily prescient statement from Basel. And in Basel, I created the Jewish state. Perhaps in five years, perhaps in 50 years, everyone will see it. Writing that basically 50 years before the UN partition plan passed. What are we to take from this story? And I think... What we have to take is the lesson that he himself didn't know originally, but which I think he began to intuit as his own remarkable life went on. Theodore Herzl sought originally the normalization of the Jewish people. If you read The Jewish State, which he wrote, it's simultaneously the most prescient uh, work in Jewish history. I'm sorry, the most prescient work in modern Jewish history. But it's also, by another standard, not prescient at all. His description of what can be achieved in terms of Jewish statehood came true, came true beyond what he even considered because, you know, he wrote there that Jews will never resurrect Hebrew as a modern spoken language because 
it's too impossible to even believe that someone will ever buy a train ticket in Hebrew, as he wrote in the Jewish state. On the other hand, he said that, I believe I have studied anti-Semitism. I believe I understand it. And he essentially argues that if the Jews return, or if the Jews create a state, then Jews will be normalized and anti-Semitism will end. He saw anti-Semitism not for what it really is, at least in my view, which is at its core an assault on Jewish chosenness. He saw it as linked to Jewish statelessness. He sought the normalization of the Jewish people, and in the end, he achieved the exact opposite of that. So I quote uh, Yaakov Herzog in a wonderful celebration of, of Herzl, uh, who describes the difference between Herzl himself and those that rally to his call. Or as he put it, and I'll quote from him, Herzl arrived at the concept of political Zionism in an attempt to find a rational solution to the dilemma of Jewish survival as it appeared to him in Europe. And then he adds, he spoke and wrote of the Jewish people attaining a normal status among the nations of the world. But for the masses who were gripped by his message and acknowledged his leadership, the goal was not normalcy. It was redemption. That indefinable feeling and urge that had remained inviolate in their innermost souls down the ages. He says, Herzl spoke in, he writes, in terms of conventional political parlance, they answered him in terms of immortal prophecy, undying faith, and historic destiny. So if you read the Jewish state today, Herzl says, look, assimilation doesn't work. Intermarriage doesn't work. It's not going to work in Europe. A person who only cares about ending anti-Semitism could say, look, intermarriage in America has not had the reaction in Europe that it had. But if the lesson of Church of, of Herzl's life is actually that the Jewish people have a role in history unlike any other. Yeah. That this story is the greatest case for Jewish chosenness and that this is deep down understood by many that are not Jewish and that this knowledge is a source both today of great philo-Semitism among many but also among many of anti-Semitism. And that all this together represents the extraordinary nature of Jewish identity and of Jewish history. Then the lesson of Herzl is that normalization is the one thing Jews can never achieve. And that, unfortunately, to the extent that there are, there are Jews in America that react negatively to, to the Zionist story, this too, in its own way, is, I think, in a negative reaction to the miracle of Jewish history. Because deep down, um, deep down, everyone understands that this is not a normal story. 
and that Herzl's story itself is one of the greatest arguments for the fact that the story is not normal. And so the question is, what lesson do you take? Is it 1895 Herzl, who senses brilliantly the, that there is no future for the Jews of Europe, but is still desperately just seeking normalization? And at that moment might have embraced assimilation if that was a viable alternative? If that's the perspective you're taking, well, then you can imagine somebody saying, well, assimilation seems to be working in America for many. Why not just embrace that? But to take that lesson from Herzl's life would be, as it were, to cut off the wonder of Herzl's story. It's to stop the story, to amputate the most remarkable part of it from the story of Herzl itself, which is that Herzl's dream has been fulfilled beyond his wildest imagining. I, I, I wrote in the journal, Jonathan, you know, that I, I took the high-speed train from Tel Aviv to Yerushalayim to Jerusalem, and I held the train ticket in my hands, and I saw the words on it in Hebrew, Rakevet Yisrael, train of Israel, and I suddenly realized this is the thing that even the great dreamer Herzl said was too remarkable to come into being, a train ticket in Hebrew. And you realize that actually that his, the very fulfillment of his dream shows that the one aspect of his original dream which could never be fulfilled was the normalization of the Jewish people. And that therefore, the response to anti-Semitism can never be assimilation. And that ultimately, what Herzl's story needs to remind us of is how privileged, at least for Jews, is how privileged we are to be part of this people and to be part of the story. And to embrace that story with every, every fiber of our being. Now, in your book, uh, The Soul American is Justice Louis Brandeis. Uh, and he's important um, because he's always exemplified the notion that Jews didn't have to choose between American patriotism and Zionism. Yet at a time, as I just alluded, when fashionable ideologies paint Jews and Israel as possessors of white privilege and anti-Zionism, is gaining some momentum among American Jewry. What can we find in his life that can continue to inspire American Zionists? Yeah, so in, in a striking way, Brandeis is so eerily relevant to our day because Brandeis traveled in the opposite direction. He began as an utterly assimilated Jew who actually saw Jewish particularism as un-American. And again, I believe in a providential way, in a moment inspired by a casual conversation in Cape Cod uh, with a former secretary of Herzl about an uncle of Brandeis, whom Brandeis deeply admired. Brandeis went from total assimilation to Zionist leadership in America at a time when that leadership was desperately needed because it was World War I and Europe was in turmoil. And Brandeis, therefore, while he never embraces Jewish observance, really, Brandeis not only renews his and deepens his understanding of the Jewish future, the argument that I make is that he actually renews and deepens his understanding of the American idea and of how from its, very cre from its very beginning, as exemplified in the story of earlier American Jews, 
America, in contrast to, say, revolutionary France, never demanded that Jews or members of any other minority religious group drop the particularistic aspects of their lives in becoming fully American. And uh, he came to understand how truly being an American leader can actually inspire one to seek the rise of, to, to seek or, and to advance and to help with the rise of free peoples everywhere. And that journey in his own life is also, if you read about his, not only his earlier life, but as, as his biographer, Melyarovsky notes, uh, speech, speeches that he himself gave right before embracing Zionism is so unlikely that I think it is providential, but it speaks so profoundly to the debates among American Jewry today. And that's why it needs to be rediscovered. Yeah. Now, your last two examples in your book are the two most revered prime ministers in Israeli history, David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin, both important, and also two men who were very much at odds with each other in their positions as well as in their approach to Jewish tradition, which, you know, in Begin, you've already referenced that. Now, at a time when Israel seems to be in the midst of a culture war between secular liberals and the traditional religious and nationalists, what can we learn from them that in particular can help Jews find some common ground, despite the fact that in many ways um, their conflict exemplified and in some ways even you know, presaged the, the dangers of division today? Yeah. So in a certain sense, of course, some of the debate going on in Israel today is linked to those original debates. To some extent, you can trace it all the way back to the original debates of 48, but certainly in the debates that are linked to the Mahapach, uh, the overturning or upheaval, uh, the 1977 victory of Begin that really set the stage for the rise politically of the Israeli right. At the same time, the, there's a reason why Menachem Begin is so missed today by so many, which he would never have predicted at the time that he retired in 1983, a broken and despondent man, his wife having just died, the love of his life. And with the war in Lebanon not having ended on a fully on a, on a, not having ended in a way that he, that he was hoping. And the reason I think why he's so missed is because he, in contrast to Ben-Gurion, as I, as I argue in the book, embodied Ahavat Yisrael, uh, love of a fellow Jew. Ben-Gurion's greatness, which I describe in the book, uh, is fueled by his love of the land of Israel, which was deeply connected to his fierce, though complicated, uh, love of the Bible complicated because of his own theological views, but still a love of the Bible he definitely had. But what he didn't have was, as you know, as at least as I grew up to pronounce it originally, Avas Yisrael, uh, just love of a fellow Jew. He had, I think we could safely say, deep hatred for some of his political rivals, 
And including bacon, clearly. Especially bacon. Well, he never mentioned even by name when they were debating. By name would call him the man sitting next to uh, that Haver Knesset. And linked, of course, to his hatred for Jabotinsky. uh, Because in perhaps the greatest act of pettiness in Israeli history, more profoundly petty from a man of such great achievements... Uh, he refused, Ben-Gurion refused to facilitate uh, the bringing of Zev Jabotinsky's body for burial to the Holy Land so that Jabotinsky's followers had to wait from 1948 to the 1960s when Levi Eshkol uh, became prime minister. I mean, it's, it's un- with, ben- with Ben-Gurion infamously saying, Israel doesn't need dead Jews, it needs live Jews. I mean, such a, a such truly terrible thing to say, um, and uh, just horrible, uh, but especially from someone of such great achievements. And who also knew Jabotinsky and, you know, had some... Knew Jabotinsky, yes, but the man is dead, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not going to... Whatever purported threat you see from him... Yeah, he, and they, he, they, they were two men yeah. who at one point almost reconciled and had a lot in common, certainly more in common yes, with and, and, Jabotinsky and, and, than he had with Begin. Which, to my mind, makes it all the more upsetting, actually. Um, and then, of course, in the 1960s, Jonathan, when uh, uh, Ben-Gurion's ire was turned on Levi Eshkol instead, uh, Ben-Gurion had a reconciliation with Begin and sent him a remarkable letter where he says to him that his wife, he says, my wife Paula has always been an admirer of yours. And she's so glad that we've had this reconciliation. And then he says something like, if only it had happened some years ago, history could have been very different. Well, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Um, But what we learn from Begin is, is love of the Jewish people. We describe where he chose to be buried. And we have to, and we we mention the Altalena. And what's upsetting to me, especially in in the current debate, is the willingness of those who feel strongly um, about the issue being debated to demonize, uh, in broad strokes, uh, the electorate that voted for the other side. Uh, Begin's most famous political speech, and I hope to write something about this at one point soon, maybe out before we post this conversation, maybe not. Um, There's a very famous speech that Begin gave in the 1981 uh, election uh, where uh, a speaker that had been speaking, a celebrity that had spoken on behalf of Begin's rival, Shimon Peres, used an ethnic slur against Likud voters. And Begin told the story I referenced of the two Jews who died in each other's arms, uh, famously saying, Ashkenazi, Iraqi, Yehudim, Giborim, Achim. One was Ashkenazi, one was from Jews from Iraq. They were brothers. The, the Jews that he knew were Sephardic, Ashkenazic, he was saying, but he, he knew them as fighters, brothers. Um, and... And 
whatever one's views are about a specific political issue, I see, without getting into specifics of individuals, I see people, people sometimes in situations of, of, of one who has written eloquently about Begin and Begin's legacy, uh, uh, utilizing um, or writing or describing uh, people on the other side with examples from early history, from earlier Jewish history, or terms or descriptions, not just in this debate, but in earlier debates, in ways that I do not think that Menachem Begin would have approved and does not live up by, and does not match his spirit. Let's just put it that way. All right, we're, um, we're not naming the writer. <laughs> so. Um, I know who you're talking uh, about. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think we see gifted writers who have been very eloquent in their defense of Israel in the past. And I don't want to make it about one person. But it's all the more painful because of their gifts and their eloquence. And one is allowed to feel very strongly about a political issue. Menachem Begin felt very strongly about certain issues. What he would not do, and, and he did not mind using political rhetoric against his opponents. But what he was against was demonizing vast swaths of people and members of an electorate. And he certainly wouldn't have used language that would compare them to, that would compare events in Israel today in a free and democratic Jewish state to, to events in the past that were wrought by enemies of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Well, that is uh, very true. Um, for those wanting to read through the code of this conversation, we're speaking of a you know, writer of a famous biography of uh, Nachum Begin, but we'll leave it at that. Um, uh, Rabbi Solovanchik, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and for your Thank fascinating you for insights on Jewish history and um, really Jewish thought as well as leadership. I also want to thank our audience. Please remember to tune in every day for Top Story Daily Edition. And whether you're listening to us on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, or any of the other podcast platforms, or watching us live on Facebook or Twitter, or on the JNS YouTube channel, please like and or subscribe to Top Story, click on the bell for notifications, and give us good reviews. Please write to us at editorjns.org and let us know where you listen or watch the show and what you think of it. And remember, keep reading and thinking for yourself, and we'll see you again next week.